0: Okay, let's get started.
1: So let me first offer my pronoun. Bandeham Siguro, Siguru Parakamalam, Siguru Vaishnavamstha. Sirupam Sagrajatam Sahaganam Ragunatan Vitam Santams Jivam. Sadvetam Savadutam Parijana Sahitam Krishna chaitanya Nadevam. Radha Krishna Paran Sahagana Lalita Sri Vishakan okay. Vitamstha. O Mugyati Mirandasya, Gyanajana Salakaya, Chaksur Ummilitam Miletam Yena Tasma Vena Maha. Sri Chaitanya Nimanobisham Stapitamy Butale, Swayam Rupagara Mayam Dadati Swapadantikam. Namobhaktivinodaya Sachsinananda Namine, Goura Shakti Swarupaya Rupanuga Varayati. Guru Maharachki Jai Sri Vaishnav Sangaki Jai. OK, so welcome again, everybody. Uh, I would like to make one uh, public announcement before we get started, and that is you guys might have noticed that the uh, internet goes off and on quite a bit um, during the Sunday calls with Gromart, And uh, it's pretty much it's really regular. And it goes off for like 15 to 30 seconds at a time. And I'm, I'm very much sorry for that. But there's really nothing we could do in this end. so to kind of make a good deal out of a bad bargain, as as, uh, Prabhupada used to say, just maybe when that happens, instead of getting agitated, try to reflect maybe on some of the points I've made or think about questions you can ask or comments or anything like that, to try to kind of go with the flow of a badly functioning technical details. Um, I think I thought about how to start this class and um, i think a good way to start would be to kind of get our spiritual and and intellectual juices flowing and and to do that i wanted to do this mental exercise of uh, uh kind of like taking you to this situation where you like consider that the world has been taken over by some kind of fascist government or something, let's say, like a communist government, because they hate religion, right. And so the government, the world, new world government had, has decided to um, ban religion, but because they want to show some kind of like feigned idea of democracy to keep the people calm, they hold a trial against religion, and then they, they have people testify to come up with reasons why they shouldn't ban religion altogether as, as like um, this um, superstitious negative uh, influence on the world. And so, you, if you think about yourself in that, you know, the booth, whatever, witness booth, and the prosecution is, is questioning you, and then they ask, they specifically ask you, what do you need scriptures for? Isn't it like scriptures basically just uh, this old, old form of knowing that might have been, you know, useful in the olden times before, before we had science? And you know, it's this culture, different cultures explain different things. They deify things and they mythologize things, and then they spin the actual truth into these fables. And call it scripture and actually what's happening is all that scripture is doing is blocking us from connecting real information directly but now we we have no need for that kind of method of of knowing because we have science and we can directly contact the information out there so now my question is what would you say in that witness booth what's your comeback to to try to for your part, not have religion banned in the world, and then you can't uh, practice your faith anymore. And let's see who's going to be in the booth first. I'm going to say Marosh, how would he respond?
0: Hare Krishna. You, what's your answer? I've got a surprising question. But, uh... <laughs> Uh, uh, that, uh, mm, that, like you, you can never know what is like outside if you are inside or something. So, like, you can ask the scientist that, um, maybe how you know that your science is sufficient or something in that line. So basically, you're questioning
1: their basis of knowledge. That yeah, you can't yeah, know so everything so by senses. Oh really really
0: yeah, sorry, can you? Sorry, I can't hear you. Sorry. Oh no worries. Oh, you can't hear me at all. Uh, no, I just uh, cannot hear your uh, answer to my reply because.
2: Haribol, Hare Krishna, I, I am uh, his, his friend and I uh, asked him what, what was your question because I'm sorry, I, 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 don't he-
0: I didn't hear you.
2: It's not yes, not uh,
0: yeah, sorry, uh, I will translate him. Okay.
1: Let me, I'll mute you for, for a while. I'll ask somebody else to answer in the meantime, okay? Thanks. So, let's ask Omkar. What's your answer,
2: Omkar? Aribal. Um, yeah, that's a really good question, I think, about that.
0: Uh, but... Oh, he froze.
1: Is it me? I know, I can see Carolina move, so it must be Omkar who froze. It seems like other people are having technical difficulties as well.
2: I'm you back on? Aribo, I'm oh, on. Oh, there uh, you go. Okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, I think I always have a roundabout way answering this kind of stuff. So I don't know what's <laughs> the point of like, what what's, I would probably ask something like, like well, just look at the world, 200 years of our Western, Western culture. Like, what did we get without when we did the, the religion? when we ditch God from the center, like, I mean, uh, try and answer somehow, somehow like uh, logically um, perhaps about um, the degradation of our society with, with sort of God sized hole in it. Like, yeah, I would probably just just try and like make a logical point, like, like kind of Jordan Peter ish. um, If that makes sense, sort of like, uh, yeah, sorry. I'm not very cohesive in my, No,
0: no, that actually does
1: make sense. No, it does make sense. Basically, you're saying that the gist (laughs) of it is that it's not like our lives have gotten better in every single way after we ditched God from the public view, basically, or like started uh, or stopped, like,
2: um, uh, what's the word? Um, Having faith in the scripture, right? Yeah, yeah, something along the lines, for sure. Yeah. And scripture isn't what people think scripture is either. I think, right. That's the point it isn't some empty thing. I mean, but that's a whole, that's a whole, and it brings it to to from the level of philosophy to the level of sort of theology. Right. So that's a bit leap of faith. I mean, how do you how do you justify? You just basically have to tell that you gotta open up another set of eyes, like Pope said. You have to have another mythology. But I think Gurmara says. He something really nicely in his, one of his lectures I just transcribed. He said something like, um, initially trying to make a reduction from, from nothing. How do you reduce something out of nothing? <laughs> right. It's just right. just is science, is like that. It's just trying to make uh, something out of nothing, which is never gonna work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's terribly, uh, yeah, yeah, unclear explanation but that would be somehow how i would go about it
1: (laughs) (laughs) no it makes sense to me so basically both maros and uh, and omkar you guys were saying that oh sorry i did something here that um, we we have no way of knowing if if what we can contact with our senses and the mind is all that there is to it and as long as we haven't fully proven that there's only the material realm there's, there's always room for conjecture and listening to the people who are trying to go beyond their minds and senses, what they're saying. And that's that's really like the, you could say from the, the ultimate
3: point of view, that is the, the purpose of script. Earth is 6,000
0: years old and the Godia say that there's no evolution the way Darwin
1: understands it or something like that. But really those that's Grumach points out how like in the Bhagavatam even, Sukhara Goswami said that it's only this is what the, the so-called scientists of that time, the way they understand the world. So really you, you could make the argument if the fascist government was trying to ban religion that the, the heart of, of scripture is the part that goes beyond the mind and the senses. And, and it has to deal with consciousness and the, the world and the life of, of, of pure consciousness. And of course, you know, they would come back with their, their own uh, uh, arguments, but that when you take it on that level, instead of trying to say that everything that the scripture says is true in every literal way, which is you can't, there's no way of maintaining that position in today's world then they it's much harder for for them to you know fight that and try to ban religion you know if, if there was such a crazy situation as what i'm talking about but what really relates to we're talking about in this series is that one way of just simply answering what's the point of scripture is that it has kind of unique answers to the basically the most fundamental question of life which is what is the meaning of life and if you think about the title of Jaiva Dharma, that's what the, the title means. It means like, what is the constitutional position of humans? What are we like? You know, animals, they do their thing. They all have this certain Dharma that they do. But humans are like extremely confused about what they're meant to be doing with their lives. And like, what is the constitutional function of humans? And it seems anyway, I won't go too far into that because it comes out in the discussion in this first chapter between uh the Babaji and this Mayabadisaniasi. So I won't go too far into it, but to answer the first question that I posed, one way of kind of easily answering it and quickly would be that it has a unique perspective on the meaning of life. And um, but at the same time, and I asked this question, I started this class with this question because I wanted to emphasize the fact that that. Bhakti Vinod was always talking about the the Vaishnav attitude, which means that you take the essence of the tradition, you don't get bogged down by the, the weight of the uh, customs and the culture that don't enhance your bhakti or enhance your like true spiritual nature. You, you dis- disregard that and you focus on the essence of the tradition and that's really... When the Gaudias, at least what we're supposed to be talking about when we talk about scripture, is that we're talking about the what's mentioned in the couple first verses of the Bhagavatam is that we want to transcend the material plane. And and the scripture is like this this handbook for uh, for trying to go beyond the material plane. Did I just freeze? Somebody lifted? it. Oh no, my own car's moving. Okay, never mind. And so so then when we look at scripture as Godius, that's the reason we study the scriptures. And I I was thinking about like when I was preparing for this class, like what would be a good um, metaphor for what what the scripture is? And this might be a little cheesy, but I'm going to go with it anyway. I came up with this idea that you could think of it as a sort of like a wedding, wedding invitation. Say like you're going to the grocery store and then this like slightly weird looking dude approaches you with the shaved head and this weird tuft in the back of his head. He gives you a wedding invitation. You're like, okay, I'm not really interested in going to a wedding. He's like, trust me, trust me, this is going to be the best wedding, you, the best party you're ever going to go to. And you will like, okay, great. Then he places the wedding invitation in your hand, and you're like, okay. And then the guy's like, we don't normally charge anything for this, but you can give a donation. Like, oh my god, one of these guys. So then you end up just, you know, giving a dollar to get rid of the guy. And then you take the invitation home, you just like throw it in the corner, whatever. But then, you know, after a while, you start wondering, like, well, I wonder what kind of a party it is, actually. And it, you take a look at the card, and it's like, you know, it's very nice, you know, all these ornaments, and is all this information and um and you know like wedding invita- invitations normally they have um a certain dress code you know you dress a certain way
0: and hold on something's beeping here let me check what's going on check Can you hear me omkar lift your hand if you can okay good excellent
1: so uh let's see where was i at oh yeah so you know once you have all the information that's in the wedding in, invite then it's up to you whether you follow up on it or not and i i think that's like the real difference between a spiritual uh focus and a religious focus that a spiritual focus focuses on like what are the rules for like what is it try to accomplish all this information in the wedding wedding invitation and the, so the spiritual focus is like okay i'm trying to like the saragrahi focus like what's the most essential information here so that i can actually go to that wedding that's going to be the best party of my life and the religious focus is no i want to stay where i'm at but i turn this like wedding invitation into some kind of a dream that i have about this like Airy fairy land that I can always pull out when my life's bad but actually I just when I enjoy in the world but you know when I feel uncomfortable or something I have this like hope that oh there is this wedding that's so much better than this life but you don't actually look at the the wedding invitation to take the essential information to go somewhere else than where you're at right now and that, that's like so much of what Bhaktivinol is doing with his understanding of scriptures and his understanding of spirituality in, in the first place is that it's all about change. Like without change, without personal change and this cultivation and refining of your consciousness and going to like one plane of uh, advancement to the next, you don't need scripture. You know, forget about scripture if, if, that's, if you don't want to move anywhere. Because in some ways it's true that you can get better information about your immediate environment, the the raw information from science. In some ways you could say that is actually true. So maybe you don't need scripture. And if your focus is only on the world, then who needs scripture? You know, we have all this crazy science or whatnot. Well, although you could even argue that point that if you throw out all scripture and all like moral morality and this like kind of like absolute sense of wrong and right. Uh, with the scriptures, then you're going to have a possibly a rough, rough life, but anyway that's to be debated, but the main point is for Godius scriptures are all about going beyond uh, the material reality to to reach that state of praying in this p- perfect union with the absolute. And uh, now that we got that sagrahi part out of the way. Um, then I wanted to give a little bit of an introduction to what Jaiva Dharma, the book, actually is. So it's this, uh, it's almost 900 pages. It's this massive um, spiritual novel written by Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And that in itself is pretty far out because nobody before Bhaktivinoda had written a, a, like a devotional Gaudiya novel. It's a completely novel idea. And the thing was, It was a new thing too. The the novel as an art form is not that old. It's just, I think, a few hundred years old. And it had just come to India with the British. And so it was like totally his like finger on the pulse of the of the world. And he figured, no, why don't I just like make a novel out of this like Gauria ideas? And so he Retired at age 56 from his position as a district magistrate, which was a pretty much the highest uh, ranking job you could have as an Indian in in the British occupied India back then. And so he um, retired at uh, in 1894, and he finished Jaiva Dharma, which, like I said, is about 19 900 pages. He finished it two years later. And for us, one interesting tidbit is that. Um, he finished the book at the same time as he um, uh, the, I mean, the same year that Prabhupada was born. And I mean, to me, that's pretty significant. It's pretty far out that the main, you could say the main book of Bhaktivinoda appeared the same year that Prabhupada appeared. But the other amazing thing about this is that um, Bhaktivinoda published three other books the same year. As he published a 900 a page novel. And it's just like thinking about it. Every time I think about it, it blows my mind that he could have that kind of uh, like focus and to spreading the Gaudiya Siddhanta and the Gaudiya understanding,
0: that he would be able to do something like that. I mean, four, four books a year is. You know, books are like, even one of them is that huge. And
1: um, so the way um, that the Jaiva Dharma is structured is it has basically like three main sections. And I'm going to be starting from the beginning. I'll see how far I get. Uh, there's so much in every section and every chapter, so much Siddhanta that I could easily just give one class out of each chapter and we'll just go forward like that. But the three different sections are, the first one is called the fundamentals of Naimittika and nitya-dharma. And basically what that means is that um, w- what he's talking about there is like this, the eternal um, function of the soul versus the occasional kind of like, yeah, the occasional function or dharma. And the whole first section is talking about the difference between the eternal function of the soul versus all this stuff that comes from our embodiment basically and our like mixing up with Maya. And, yeah, so that's the first section. The second section is he's talking about the fundamentals of Abhideya, I mean, uh, Sambanda abhideya and prayojan. And so that goes deeper into the Siddhanta. First, he's kind of like comparing the, the Vaishnav, Gauria Vaishnav, Siddhanta and worldview with uh, different varieties of like materially uh, influenced worldviews. And then he goes on directly to the Gaudiya Siddhanta itself in a second section. And then the third section is Rasa Tattva. It's all about the Rasa and specifically Madhurya Ras. And that's, he's basically like summarizing Ujval Nilmani, which is a book by Rupa Goswami on Rasa Tattva. So that's just a quick overview of what the book is. And uh, so. The book starts in a very cool way. It's basically just like zoom in. You think of a movie where you have like a, the first shot is the globe, you know, the world in space. And he zooms in. He says, like, the best place in this world is Jambudweep, which is, you know, the larger, you could say the Asian subcontinent or something. And then there, the, the most beautiful place is Bharat Varsha, which is the old area of, um, of India. And then, inside uh, India or Barsha, Bharat, the best place is Nav- uh, Navadvip Mandal. Did I freeze again? No, okay, good, thank you. And then, within Navadvip, there's, you know, the nine islands. Out of them, Godrum is the best. maybe he doesn't say the best but anyway he zooms into godroom and then within godroom there's all these like little kunjas where all these babajis are doing their practice and one particular kunja is called pradyumna kunja where this prem das babaji is uh, doing his bhajan and just spending his days in basically like spiritual rapture so he zooms from the world into this like showing us how like uh special it is what we're going to be talking about it's like Out of the whole world, we focus on this one person who was a Siddha Mahatma, which means he's completely perfected and he's, like, in this constant spiritual rapture. And um, he starts kind of, like, telling uh, what uh, Premdas Babaji's life is like. He chants 128 rounds a day and uh, whatever remaining time he has, he... Uh, offers hundreds of dandavat pranams to devotees, Vaishnavas, and then he uh, goes on Madhukari to beg for a little bit of food. And then if he has any time left, then he reads Prem Pradipa by Jaganada, uh, one of Mahaprabhu's associates. And the cool thing is this book is like placed in the time of, of one or two... Um, what's the word, uh, generations after Mahaprabhu in, in Navadvip. And so, like, for example, uh, this Premdas Babaji's Siksha guru is Pradyumna Brahmachari, who was an actual uh, associate of Mahabrabhu. And so in at this time, when this story is going on, he's old and he's living in this temple, Nishingadev uh, temple and worshiping Nishingadev. And uh, there's all these, like, people who've met the six Goswamis and and uh, like that. And uh, I thought it was a cool idea on Bhaktivinoda's part to place it in the time just after Mahaprabhu like that and show that like sadhakas uh, lives instead of the, the eternal associates basically. And so one day Prem Das Babaji is chanting his 128 rounds and he's in complete rapture again. But then he kind of becomes becomes aware of him and then he opens his eyes and he sees this Mayavari uh, Sannyasi laid down in front of him, like full prostrated obeisances, and for a long time and then finally the sannyasi gets up and and starts talking to him and he tells him that he was a mayavati sannyasi in kashi and he had been a sannyasa for like 12 years all the different stages of sannyasa to the highest paramahamsa stage but still like he was not feeling the bliss that was supposed to come from that and then one day he was meditating on brahman and his meditation was broken by this Chanting like go Nityananda, go Nityananda, and he like startled and looked around. He saw this devotee who was in such ecstasy, like I guess roaming the streets of Kasi, that he couldn't stay on his feet. He would stumble over and just cry out to gore and Nityananda and and cry and just keep, you know, dance, danced, and that couldn't control himself. And it created this really strong bliss in that Vaishnava, uh, I mean, the not Vaishnava, but the. Um, sannyas is hard but because he had a certain like reputation in Varnasi he couldn't react to it or he couldn't go to that devotee and ask like what are you all about but he was completely overwhelmed by praying or oh, not praying but like prema boss and then he just tried forgetting about it and continuing with his brahman realization but he simply could not let it go and then it got to a point where he had to leave kashi and just follow that uh, spiritual inspiration and he heard about vrindavan so everybody knows about vrindavan so he went to vrindavan to look for that devotee but so he couldn't find him but uh, he met all these other devotees who were glorifying navadvip because of Mahaprabhu, and then his heart pulled him to navadvip he was like anxious to find that that amazing like explosive spiritual inspiration that came through that one devotee that he had accidentally met in Kashi. Kashi. And so then he ended up in Mayapur and um, there everybody in the town of Mayapur were like glorifying this one Babaji called Prem Das Babaji. And then so then he went out and, you know, seeked him out basically and that's how he ended up being prostrated in front of Babaji Maharaj's at Babaji Maharaj's feet. And hearing the story of babaji maharaj because of course if you're siddha mahatma you're completely like inundated with humility and praying which you know go together apparently i wouldn't know (laughs) and uh, and so because of his intense humility he just babaji maharaj started crying and said i'm a complete fool and the fact that you were able to taste that praying even for that short time I should be taking instructions from you. And he's like fell at the feet of the uh, of the um, impersonal, impersonalist uh, Sanyasi, And then the Sanyasi got, you know, triggered by that. And they both started crying and falling over and, you know, embracing each other and dancing and for hours and hours. They kept going like that. And there's a lot of scenes like this in Jiva Dharma, like these like extreme uh, expressions of emotion and, and spiritual ecstasy and dancing and crying and stuff like that. And just as a quick side note, um, one of my devotee friends who was a very avid reader of like Western literature and stuff, she said that she couldn't read Jaiva Dharma because to her, it was like from the literary point of view it was so awful (laughs) that's what she said that she couldn't
0: read it because like everybody was just falling over in ecstasy instead of like
3: having struggle overcome
0: uh obstacles and challenges and she said uh, she just couldn't read it because it was like so.
1: of like sappy and sentimental and what i would say to that is that we have to keep in mind that we're talking about siddha mahatmas here and people who come to siddha mahatmas after lifetimes of practicing bhakti so they have or or gyan so that they're extremely pure in their hearts and so like if you consider think about those moments that you've had some like like baba boss you could say like when you have some like extremely sudden intense spiritual emotion or like you you know sometimes you get completely overwhelmed by a spiritual emotion and it happens for us by the grace of higher devotees that we associate with but those moments happen so take those moments in your life when you've had that kind of you choke up you start crying you can't help yourself and and like multiply that multiply that by a million times and that that would be continuous and so like that's the only way we can even like come even close even in any way close to understanding what the reality is that bhaktivinoda is trying to describe in this book so because he's only he can only describe you know the the uh, external symptoms because you can't really share exactly or experience with anybody other than by trying to, trying to describe it That kind of description falls so flat when it comes to deep spiritual emotions and and so my friend couldn't read the java dharma because she was comparing it to like normal literature but we really shouldn't think about in mind that this is talking about siddha mahatmas and and whatever little uh spiritual emotion the peak emotions we've had just think think about those moments and think what it would be like to feel like that a million times at all, and that way we can appreciate what's actually going on. So, like this description here, this Maya uh, Sanyasi and this Babaji meet, and they explode in the spiritual ecstasy. That's totally conceivable. <laughs> I mean, when you're that pure. Uh, that's actually what's going to happen. And the, the amazing thing is that's what's waiting for us to win one of, one of these lifetimes. That's what, that is the goal of why we study these scriptures and why we try to make progress is that that's where we're going to end up in. We're going to end up in praying Bhakti
0: and we're going to be the crazy people in Jaya dharma that, you know, normal people can't understand and think it's ridiculous.
3: Um, there's all
0: this cool stuff that happens, but and and Thakur basically he like dedicates himself
1: to Premdas Babaji as his disciple. He wants to learn from him and him and spend the rest of his life with him. But the problem is Premdas Babaji keeps falling into these intense trance states. So then uh, Thakur can't ask him any questions. And then finally there's an opening. I think one morning uh, Premdas Babaji is chanting his rounds in this kunja. And and then Sanyas Thakur approaches him and asks if he can ask him a question. And this question basically sets off the whole
3: premise of this book. The whole book is about this. Can you hear me?
0: Okay, good. <laughs> uh, so then also, the, the second question
1: is, could you then also explain to me why are so many people saying all these different things? It's it's what If there's only one karma, there's one constitutional function, eternal function for the souls, why are so many people giving these different answers? And Babaji Maharaj, starts by praying on the lotus feet of Gore and And then he starts uh, giving his answer. And so to understand what the whole book of Jayodharma is about, the Dharma means the Dharma of the Jiva, so the constitutional function or the eternal function of the Jiva, or the living being. And so really what it means is what is the meaning of life? Like in, in contemporary terms, that's what it is. And I wanted to talk a little bit about like, just to uh, show what the world we live in thinks about what the meaning of life is compared to what Dharma and other scriptures, Gaudi scriptures, uh, what answer, what kind of answer they give. Uh, I'm gonna segue just a little bit to talk about that. And so the most common answers, uh, they've done surveys about what, what the meaning of life is with people and the most common answers, there's two that come up over and over again. Number one pretty much seems to be social relations. So basically, family and friends, is number one. And then happiness is number two. And those are like kind of interchangeable. They always take the second or the, excuse me, the first or the second place. And that's pretty much if you ask your friends or family who are not spiritual what they value most in life, it does come down to those things. But then there are the other, uh, you know, other, uh, um, Answers like some people actually think hard work and and prosperity is the meaning of life, that you you fight and struggle and and win the fight against survival, that you survive basically and do well is their meaning of life. Some people might say to live is the meaning of life, you know, they think it's as simple as that, living is the meaning of life, and they think they're very profound by coming up with such a clever response. And then when it starts to go from karma and arta from like uh, basically like gratification and uh, advancement, material material advancement, they go to virtue. So they might say self-examination and knowledge is the meaning of life, like learning new things and developing your uh, psychophysical personality. And then surprisingly, religion is very low in at the bottom a lot of the times at these surveys as a meaning of life. And I mean, that makes sense because really most people are uh, like completely in the bodily consciousness. And so religion is not very, you know, it's not uh, palatable for people who will not express themselves uh, in their embodiment, you know, as uh, freely as they want, basically. But then, so the interesting thing here is, okay, so that's what people normally say. But what about, so the, the authorities of today are basically philosophy and science, right? So what does science say about the meaning of life? Well, they say, they basically say there's no meaning. That, that well, actually they say, they start by saying science is not supposed to answer why. Science only an- answers how, which means they only observe the functions of the external world and they make generalizations. And based on those generalizations, they make these uh, what would you call them, Uh, like uh, theories of what's true and what's not true. But the funny thing is, that's what they claim what science is. A lot of scientists say that that's what science is, that it doesn't basically, has no opinion on what the meaning of life is. But it's very, very common that the extension of that is to claim that there actually is no mean that it just is what it is and it functions on its own. So that's it's of course, it's too much of a generalization to say that all of science says like that. But like, let's say like the mainstream over the overarching idea in science would probably be that there is no meaning. And then if you look at philosophy, and this is funny because traditionally, if you ask anybody on the street, like what do philosophers do, they would
3: probably say, well, they they try to figure out what the meaning of life is. mostly even think that the
0: question of what's the meaning of life is a nonsensical question. I mean,
1: it's pretty interesting. They, I, I did some research on this, and a lot of the analytical philosophers say that to ask what is the meaning of life is the same as asking what does the, the color red taste like. i to let that sink in just for a couple of seconds there. <laughs> so basically, what that means, what they're trying to say with that is that uh how would you even like break that down that yeah i don't even know how to break that down like what (laughs) so basically you can't ask what the meaning of life is because i guess what they would say is that life is this objective thing that happens And meaning is something that we completely construe in our psyches. And and they are two things that just completely don't work together. So to ask what is the meaning of life as like, and what's the meaning of existence is like trying to fit a square block through a round hole. And what blows my mind about that is that they simply assume that it's an absolute fact that the qualia or the the qualitative uh, assumptions about life are completely subjective and thus like not real. And they just make that assumption and they make claim it's a nonsensical question instead of saying from my point of view, this question doesn't make sense. I mean, it's <laughs> anyway interesting, uh, uh, kind of like. Um, bias I would say that they are kind of unaware of they just think it's a ridiculous question and the absolute truth is that there is no meaning and so obviously from our point of view we've gone come to a spiritual path we've come to Gaudiya Vaishnavism those kind of answers are completely unsatisfying like I personally get absolutely nothing out of that other than it is interesting of course always to try to understand how other people think But that's as far as it goes for me. And and so we can, in in terms of giving the answer to what the meaning of life is, I think we could pretty much discard ultimately science and Western philosophy in answering that for us. Because we clearly have this understanding as Godi, as as spiritual practitioners, that there's a clear structure to life where we are covered by the material influence and that we are actually spiritual by nature and this is what Premdas Babaji starts telling uh, the Sanyas Thakur and, and the meaning of life in this state of our being is to purify our consciousness with the practices of sadhana Sanha, Bhakti and the ultimate meaning of life is to live in this constant aesthetic rapture in connection with God And so to say that the question itself is as ridiculous as what's the taste of the color red for us is like the most ridiculous (laughs) answer ever to the question of the meaning of life. And so in that way, we can just discard discard the science and philosophy answers and go back to Jaiva Dharma. And so Babaji Maharaj starts responding to the question, what is Dharma by explaining this idea of of a substance or object in in Indian philosophy, and they use this word in the Indian darshans called vastu. You might have heard it
3: from kind of like the equivalent in India and Hindu Hindu world is called. So
0: the the intrinsic eternal nature of that vastu
1: or object is its Nitya Dharma. and that's this one of the two terms that are get repeated over and over again in this first section of Jaiva is Nitya Dharma. and then um, the acquired nature that comes from the, like long-term connection with other object or from just like from the um, What's the word? Um, circumstance. This acquired nature is called Naimittaka Dharma, or it means like occasional Dharma or, or being. And um, another word for this acquired nature is Nisharga. A lot of terms, but try to bear with me. And the true nature, another word for the true nature or, or the Nitya Dharma. Swabhava, which gets repeated. That's a really good term to know, actually, because it gets repeated in uh, a lot of the Gaudiya. Uh, Mulgrantas, like Goswami's work, and, and uh, um, Upa Goswami's work gets repeated all the time. So the, our true nature is called svabhava And Babaji Maharaj, at this point, he gives this example of water, and Grumash uses this example a lot as well. And so, Basically, the idea is that that liquidity and wetness is the swabhav or the nitya dharma of water, right? And when it solidifies into ice, that's like the the nisarga or the naimittika dharma. That's for, due to a force of a circumstance, which is in this case temperature. Uh, the the Swabav changes transforms or well, it looks like it really it just gets covered over but like it looks like it changes into this different thing and then as time passes a long time passes those beings uh, what we're talking about jivas, of course here we start identifying of course there is no beginning but you, you know speech is what it is but we start identifying because of that like long term connection with that nisarga or the false nature we start identifying with that that nature that is actually not who we are. That's not our eternal function, and uh, that's how we end up. Uh, like why it's so hard for us to get beyond our attachments and our material embodiment and and the kind of like my idea what we are based on that, because we've basically been misidentifying ourselves forever like from time that never started which means for an eternity it's so inconceivably long that we can't even understand it with our brains so that's why it's so extremely hard to try to purify our consciousness to go i mean we've come to a point where our true pure original consciousness feels like an imposition really in in a lot of ways like as much as we don't have Bhakti Socrates or Socrates for the Atma Gyan or the understanding of Atma Gyan or the knowledge of the pure self, as much as we don't have that, spiritual life feels like a complete imposition. Isn't that amazing? That like our true nature feels like an imposition to us because we've gotten so far with our misidentification. Like If you ask any normal person in the world, What they think about sitting down even for two hours a day and and doing mantra meditation i i've i've gotten like people are either they are just like disgusted by it and they can't believe that i would waste my life like that or they really appreciate it but they say i could never ever do that myself so that's really uh, what babachimhaj is talking about here he's saying we are completely covered over by Maya Shakti, and um, then he goes on further to explain this term Vastu, and he says that it, it derives from the Sanskrit uh, root word Vas, which means to reside. Like say, like Braj Vasi. that means like a person who lives in the Braj or resides in Braj. And so really what vastu means is this like true, truly abiding substance or like no, well, like uh, existence, I guess you could say. You reside in your own being, you could say. And then to make it even more complicated, I really should have made some kind of a like a infographic for you guys, but I spaced out on it. So to make it more complicated, then Babaji Maharaj breaks it down to two different types of vastu, which is vastava vastu and avastava-vastu, and vastava-vastu means a truly abiding substance and avastavavastu vastu means a temporary substance and basically when uh, he's explaining the difference to Baba, uh, to the Maivari uh, Sanyasi he's saying that only Bhagavan Sri Krishna, really when it comes down to it, only Bhagavan Sri Krishna is vastava-vastu or, or a true, truly abiding substance and the reason why you could say that the Jiva Shakti and the Maya Shakti are also Vastava Vastu is because, only because of their connection to Bhagavan Sri Krishna. And um, basically he's making the point only Krishna is a real substance and the things that are connected to him and, and whatever else is outside of that, like the temporary mirage-like appearances that we have in the world, all that is It It looks like an object and it is an object for a short amount of time,
0: but really it's like a mirage. It does not truly exist.
3: And I'm looking at the clock here and... I'll move on to the questions. as I'll
0: comment. But um, yeah, there's still stuff I wanted to talk about, but it's
1: just uh, hard to keep myself from talking too much. So um, I think I have to wrap it up in the next class because I don't want to, I want to have your attention as much as possible. And I know that means I should keep it short. So let's just move on to the questions. And Sarada asks in the chat, does this bus also have a connection to the meaning of our true constitutional position? yeah yeah so uh, then babaji maharaj goes on to explain how we we can only understand our jiva dharma or the the true constitutional function of the jiva by understanding bhagavan because we're completely relational in that way we're not like our own vastus because we're completely dependent and parts of that um, that truly abiding substance of, of Bhagavan Sri Krishna. And so that's really our Vastu, the whatever Vastu you could say what we are is, is because we are closely, closely connected to Bhagawan. And that's one thing I wanted to talk more about, this connection how we are actually connected to Bhagavan. But anyway, I'm going to leave that for the next class. And if anybody else has comments or questions, I'd love to hear.
2: it's I'm wondering, uh, just a little note, if we could do a reading of the Jiva Dharma to kind of follow up on better.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: would you recommend us to what would be for the next?
1: Yeah, that's really that's a great idea. I should have thought of that myself, but I didn't. So if you read the first chapter of the first, the very first chapter called, um, let's see, I have it right here. The Eternal and Temporary Dharmas of the jiva. That's actually a really good idea if you guys really want to follow closely what I'm trying to say, because I, I get so excited about these certain points in connection to the book that it might get a little like hazy, like what is the book actually saying? So uh, it would be fantastic if you guys have the time to go read, uh, read the first chapter of Jaiva Dharma, or you can listen to it. Uh, Narayana Maharaj has, well, their group has put out a free audio book online. If you look for it, Jaiva Dharma Audio, you can find it. So, um, oh, somebody, uh, sorry, I just said it here. Yep. Yeah, the
0: ebook is available as well for free. So that's great. And so that is a really
3: good idea. Oh, am I back on? Haripriya, do you have a question? I saw you um
0: turned on the video. Um,
3: yeah, Hari Ball. Thank
2: you. Let's see if this uh works. I have also had a bit technical difficulties. <laughs> but I, I do have a question. And uh it's um: do we know more about the background of the Tarama? Like, like, for example, uh, what was the motivation for Srila Thakur to write that book, or was there some kind of like theological uh, discussion going on, and that was kind of like his contribution that he wanted to make on on some spe- specific terms, or can you say a few words about that?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, I tried looking into that, and it was really hard to find any like interesting information about. Dharma itself and like what was going on at that time I didn't have time to go into Bhaktivinotes. there's all these biographies about him so too bad Brigu is not on because he I'm sure he could shed some light so I think what I, I will do is before the next class I will uh, contact Brigu and see if he knows I mean I'm sure he does so I'll,
0: I'll ask him and then I'll get back to you Let's see. Anything else?
2: I just wanted to say I'm I'm friends with um, Yana Shaktidas, who's uh, kind of the Jiva Dharma specialist. He lives in Vancouver. He's a sheriff in Vancouver, but he's the <laughs> one who's Narayan Maharaj's disciple. Uh, he's a very interesting guy. Um, he um, he posts like tons of stuff about it every day on Facebook, basically. So. Yeah, he's a really good source. He's very openly talking the, about it to anyone. Oh, really. that's... But, uh, yeah. yeah that's if really... anybody wants to ask, you can ask him. Yeah, also. yeah, yeah. Can you send me
1: his link or like link to his Facebook or something? Yeah,
2: yeah he gives classes free as well. Anybody can sign up. So it's a really good resource. Somebody wants to deepen their study.
3: You cut off again, by the way. Okay, I think the internet, cut off? yeah, um, can you hear me?
1: Okay, yeah, I think that connection is trying to tell me that I've been talking too long so it started cutting off a lot more all of a sudden. So I think we'll quit. stop here and uh, hope you all will come back next week and uh, I'll try to uh, <laughs> condense a little bit more so we get moving a little bit more, but uh, I'm very excited to do this and I'm really glad you guys came here and uh,
0: hope to see you soon again. Haribo.